Welcome to Convention Pulpit, Wesleyan Voices Past and Present, brought to you through the Ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention. Visit our website for an entire library of great sermons and more information on this ministry, www.ihconvention.com. Today we're bringing you the testimony of Albert Barr. He gave this testimony at the annual camp meeting held at God's Bible School and College in Cincinnati, Ohio back in the 90s. Albert Barr had a very unique ministry and God used him mightily to touch hearts all over the United States of America. I know you will enjoy this wonderful sermon. Keep passing it on, keep passing it on, and I appreciated what our brother said in his testimony. He said it a little differently than I would say it, but the fact is, people, that the awfulest thing in the world is self-pity. And the fact is that if the devil has given you lemons, turn around and make lemonade out of it. And if every time the devil kicks you, you turn around and make a testimony and a sermon and a, and a work out of it and you use it to empathize and to help those that you can understand and that they know that you understand because you've been there. After a while, the devil kind of gets tired of kicking you. Instead of feeling sorry for yourself, where you've had your share of hard knocks, and many of us have, learn that God can turn those things around and enable us to reach out to a hurting world in compassion and love. And I do know. Now I'm giving you my testimony today under the impetus that God is in it. And I, I would like to kind of give a little disclaimer here. I, I'm writing my testimony in book form because I've been asked to do so. And I'm entitling it The Best I Can Remember... And the reason is because I'm always under a little pressure in the pulpit when I share stories for fear I'll get some detail wrong. And after a while, that can kind of stumble you up on stories. And so I'm just telling you, this is the best I remember. And if there happens to be a little detail wrong here and there, God knows I do not mean to deceive anyone. This is, this is my testimony, the best I can remember. And that means a little more than it might if you said the best you can remember because I don't remember much. Most of my childhood is a total blank to me. In fact, I was 21 when I graduated from high school. My father was a career Air Force officer, navigator, instructor, and for most of my childhood, we moved every three months. He would go to an air base, he would instruct navigators in the latest equipment and techniques, and for three months, it was a three-month course, and then we would move to another air base, and we would do the same, and then another air base, and we would do the same. I've been in every state in the United States now, number of foreign countries under those conditions. So when this means that in any given school year, I would be in maybe three, sometimes it would lap over and make four different schools in four different states per year. Well, when you are in three and four schools per year, 
and you are 21 when you get out of high school, you gather up a lot of report cards. <laughs> and so I have, a, my mother has, a big stack of report cards. And in most of those report cards, the teacher, as she passes me on to the next, has written in into the bottom something to this effect, this little boy is retarded. He cannot learn. But he's a good little boy, and if you'll put him over in the corner and give him some coloring crayons and a coloring book, he will behave himself, and you can teach those that will learn. And so they did. And they would put me over in the corner, and they would teach those that could learn. You see, I have dyslexia. Dyslexia is not actually an intelligence problem. It is a perceptual problem. I don't have a drastic case of it. It's been diagnosed, and there's a percentile range, and I, mine is not a severe case. If it's severe, you cannot learn to read. But it was just severe enough that when it came time to learn my ABCs, I couldn't. It seems to somewhat click in and click out with me depending on whether I'm nervous or not. And if it clicks in, I do not know a B from a D from a P. I do not know my right arm from my left. When I taught, and I have taught on the college level, I would like you to know that I, you really haven't come today to spend an hour with an idiot. Uh, I have taught on the college level math and science computer programming, number of subjects. And when I lecture in the classroom, I never write on the chalkboard. I'll do math on the chalkboard, but I won't write on the chalkboard. I use overhead projector because it is a little embarrassing if you're the professor and you suddenly can't remember which way a B turns and a D. And so I, just, I never did. In fact, I remember when I was teaching at Hope Sound, every year the students put on a little skit in which they mimic their professors. And whoever was mimicking Brother Barr would come out with a pillow in their coat. I don't know what that was about, but they'd come out and they would have in their pocket a, a rubber snake or a plastic mouse because I was famous for going to the schoolroom with a armadillo or a squirrel or a possum or something in my pocket because I love wild things, and I like to share them with the class. And uh, so they would go through all these things that in their mind uh, said Professor Barr. But invariably, whoever was mimicking me as they would stand up and go through their lecture, they would imitate one of the mannerisms that I have in the classroom, and that is that as I talk, I tend to pull my sleeve up a little ways on each side every now and then. Finally, one day, one of the students asked me, said, Mr. Barr, why do you do that? Well, the reason that I do that is that back when I was a child, I, part of this rejection that I felt by others as I fell farther and farther behind my grade level and developed stammering and stuttering because of the emotional pressure of the situation and would be laughed at and made fun of, I withdrew more and more into myself and in fact reached the point where I did not really know the difference between the fantasy world and the real. And I lived most of my childhood in a fantasy world. I was off fishing somewhere. My mother will get out all this stack of yearbooks and she'll go through and here's a picture of 
myself when I was a child, and maybe I'm standing by a little jug-headed boy, and she'll say, now, that's Tommy. Tommy was your best friend when you lived in Waco. You don't remember Tommy and this incident and that? No, I don't remember Tommy. I lived in a fantasy world, and I really didn't know reality from, from, the real, from a fantasy. And, and we had a TV. We were living in Puerto Rico, and believe it or not, even back when I was a boy, they, they, they did have TV. It had been invented, and uh, they had Batman even back then, you know, and Batman would dress up like a bat and fly around, and this was so real to me till I, I would tie a towel around my neck and I would be Batman or Superman or whatever it might be, and I would fly around the yard, you know, pshh. One day I found my father's oxygen mask that he used in flying the airplane, goggles and the long trunk for plugging into the oxygen supply. And I put it on, and here was this long trunk. Well, you know, Batman dressed up like a bat and flew around, and so I had this trunk, so I, I was elephant man. And I tied, tied the towel around my neck, and I flew around the yard, elephant man. And this became so real till finally I climbed up on top of a two-story building and jumped off. And I discovered that I really was Elephant Man. I flew very much like an elephant. And down I came, landed in a big cement bucket in a, in a pile of sand, shattered my right elbow. I do not mean broke it. I mean shattered it like a piece of glass into a hundred pieces. Well, they gathered me up, took me to the hospital on the base, and they decided that it was just so bad that there wasn't a thing they could do for it. It would set up in mass, and I would never move my elbow again. But then they contacted, the Air Force contacted a doctor in San Juan, Puerto Rico, the capital over on the other end of the island from Guadataca Beach, where we lived, and that uh, he thought he could do better than that. So the Air Force flew me across to San Juan, and I spent several months in the hospital in San Juan, repeated surgeries as they went back in and put my elbow back together, and it just just very good shape today. But as a consequence of that, I have a lovely big scar on my right arm. And I know simply as a matter of fact that it is my right arm that has the scar. And every now and then I would be up teaching and suddenly I would realize that I did not know right from left. Uh, you can always spot the dyslexic kids in the classroom, just walk in and say, raise your right arm and they'll all... Well, and it's a little embarrassing if you're the professor and you don't know right from left. And so I would, what I had hoped, without uh, drawing much attention, I would simply slide the sleeves up a little bit to catch a glimpse of the scar so that I could get right and left oriented again and get it all clicked back in place. Besides the dyslexia, and we de developed the speech impediment from, I believe, the emotional trauma we had a number of physical problems. My mother had 12 children. Only four of us survived infancy. Mama had, had physical problems that usually resulted in the children being born very premature, would live for a week, 10 days, two weeks, sometimes a month, and then die. And uh, when I was born, I was, a, well, in those days, they called a blue baby, and I had to have an immediate total blood transfusion. From the transfusion, I got hepatitis and fought for life. I had one leg much longer than the other, and I wore a weighted shoe for uh, many years until my legs kind of caught up 
with each other and found some anomalies inside. Eventually, I have a lot of bones in me that just are floating around. They don't connect to anything. They're just there. I guess I was supposed to be twins, which explains a lot. <laughs> Far worse, though, than any of the physical or emotional or learning disability problems was the mere fact that we did not know the Lord. Now, I have a very wonderful mother and father. I love them very much. There is one tragedy that faces so many of our young people that, thank God, I never knew. And that is, I have always known, even before my mom and dad became Christians, I knew that I was loved very, very much. My heart goes out to children who are not loved. I always knew I was loved. But there was still a lot of problems. There were a lot of problems in the home simply because we were sinners, because we did not know the Lord. My mother and father were not wicked in the sense of a wicked heart, but they acted wickedly in many ways simply because they did not know the Lord. It has been my privilege to serve the Lord on a number of foreign fields. I have never met what we would call a heathen that knew less about God than we knew living in the United States. Some people think I'm exaggerating, but I am not when I say that we did not know that there were different denominations. We did not know that there were Methodist and Baptist and Holiness. We simply knew that some people went to church and some people didn't go to church. We were among those that didn't. That's all that we knew. I would not tell you this if it were still true, for I would not want to bring a reflection upon a very wonderful, wonderful mother. I am convinced the longer I live that very few have ever had a mother so wonderful as mine. But my mother was an alcoholic in those days. She had joined the Alcoholics Anonymous trying to get help. They had not helped her with their problem. They do help some people with that problem. They had not been able to help her. She was a chain smoker. She was a professional entertainer at times, a very beautiful woman, a very talented woman. And uh, at times her act was of a very sensuous nature. And our home had the typical problems of a non-Christian home. And it did not help in the sense of security in the home because there was often strife and, and tragedy there. And that was far and away the worst of all the problems. We simply didn't know the Lord. It was while we were living in Puerto Rico that my mother gave birth to a little girl. It was, she was not expected to live. She was so very premature. She was born in a little Puerto Rican hospital. It was always my mother and father's uh, mindset that wherever we lived, we lived like the nationals. When we lived in Japan, we, we could have lived on base, but we lived off base in a Japanese house with tatami mat on the floor. We took our shoes off at the door. We ate every meal with chopsticks. My mother would invariably go wherever we were in a new culture. She would ask around, find out who had the reputation for being the best cook in the area, and she would negotiate with them to trade out some kind of a skill that my mother would have and she had many for instruction in cooking in the, in the national style. And I thank God for that heritage, by the way. It's a consequence I don't know of a food that I don't like. 
Now, it may have some problems in that, but I'll tell you what, I know young people today, good young people, Christian young people, that if God called them to the mission field, I don't know how they go because they can't eat anything but Big Macs. But here we were living in Puerto Rico, and we lived way out in the, in the country, and my mother gave birth in a very primitive hospital. My little sister was so undeveloped, her lungs collapsed at birth. They put her in an old army surplus oxygen tent, struggling for life. Different world, different circumstances. They didn't even weigh her at birth because no one anticipated her living. And it was well into her life, I, I believe maybe a couple weeks before they finally realized she might live, and they weighed her and she weighed two pounds and one ounce. I don't know what she weighed when she was born. She was, at least last I knew, the smallest baby born to, to survive in Puerto Rico, at least back in those days. Her name is Anita, and she is a missionary in Taiwan today. And some of you may know Anita Halter. Uh, but here was this little girl fighting for life, and my mother prayed to the God she didn't know, Lord, let my little girl live and made a vow Lord if you'll let my little girl live she figured the meanest thing we did was that we didn't go to church and she said I'll start going to church and Anita lived and a few months later we were posted back to the United States and one day living in a trailer park as we usually did there was a knock at the door and a lady invited us to church and my mother said we don't go to church and the lady left but a few days later or after she was gone my mother looked down at her baby and remembered the vow she had made and began to be afraid that maybe God would take her up on her vow. And so when the lady came back again and asked, and I'm awfully glad she came back and asked again, appreciated what was said in the Sunday school hour yesterday, keep going back. You're not obnoxious, and even if you are, there are worse things. <laughs> she came back and asked us again, and we went. And it was a great big high steeple church, church where there's not a lot of gospel preached, but we heard for the first time in our lives that Jesus had died for us. We were all sinners, but that if we'd come to the Lord, he'd save us. And that's the truth. And we went forward. They did not have an altar. They took us to an inquiry room. They read some scriptures to my daddy and my mother and myself, my little brother and little sister, not old enough to understand. Asked us if we believed them. We said that we did, and Jesus saved us. And my home went overnight from hell, almost an unimaginable hell, to an almost unimaginable heaven. I mean God transformed our home. You know, a lot of our people, a lot of our young people, maybe not so young, cannot really appreciate. If you grew up in a Christian home, you maybe don't appreciate what you'd have in that home if it weren't for Jesus. Can't really appreciate the change that God wrought and what a wonderful thing is a Christian home. But I remember just enough to know that I'm awfully thankful that Jesus entered our home. God, in his great mercy, instantly and miraculously delivered my mother from drink, delivered my mother from tobacco. She quit her job. Now, by the way, I know there are people just as well saved as my mother who struggle with those habits. But God, in his mercy, took this woman who knew nothing about the things of God and instantly, not even knowing, certainly not knowing that tobacco was wrong, but he instantly delivered her at conversion. We filled out a little card, you know, and later that week the pastor came by to visit these people who had signed the card, and my mother was bubbling over. And I refer to my mother more because 
by her emotional temperament and so on, she, she's a shouter and she's much more forward and much more spectacular in her conversion, but there is no question my daddy was a changed man, a saved man as well, though a quiet man. But the preacher came by to visit these people, my mother just bubbling over with testimony, and the preacher was horrified. The preacher that led us to Jesus, he said, Mrs. Barr said, the devil will make a fanatic out of you. He said, I drink liquor. I smoke cigarettes. Now, he did say when he found out what her job was, even he agreed she should quit it, but he did say you understand that it has nothing to do with your salvation. Now that you're a Christian, you could have been on the stage performing your act and Jesus come and you'd have went right on to heaven. People, we'd never been to church before in our lives, but God the Holy Ghost will teach you some things if you listen to him. And God began to help us and we began to grow and we were always walking way ahead of any light that we were hearing preached. You know, I would never, I think it would be obvious to any thinking person that this is the last way that you would ever want to grow in the Lord. But we were ignorant and didn't know any better and God protected us from all of the horrible things that could have happened. But we were moving every three months. And so... Three months, we would move into a new community. The first Sunday after we got there, we would get dressed for church, go out and get in the car. My daddy would bow his head, say, Lord, help us to find a church to go to. We would drive to the first church we came to, and as far as I can remember, that's where we spent those three months. People, I've been a Baptist. I've been a Methodist. I've been a Quaker. I've been a, You name it, I've been one. Okay? I hold, I'm sure you can see what a dangerous spiritual roulette that is but God knew in our ignorance and he protected us and I'm glad he did it the way he did and it's done something for me people I know whether you accept it or not I know that there are people who are genuinely born again and thus are my brother and sister in the Lord who do not have all the light that you and I have if my mother had walked into this tabernacle after having been a Christian a year or two and stood up and testified, I'm afraid by some she would have received a cold shoulder. But she was as much a child of God as she would ever become. I'm glad God led us into holiness. I'm so thankful that he led us into holiness. I'm glad that he led us into conservative holiness. But I do know that all we're responsible for is to walk in the light of God. I do know that there was a hunger for light. I know we were open for light. I know that uh, we had a television, and back in those days they, they did not have, uh, they did not print the TV guide. They printed in the newspaper what was in the, in the, on the different channels. And my mother would cut that page out and tape it on the wall beside the TV set. And if she saw anything in the programming or the advertising that bothered her and she had a tender conscience, she'd scratch that one off. And woe be unto any of us watch, caught watching anything Mom had done scratched off. Well, she kept scratching off and scratching off till it got down in a given week we could watch Oral Roberts and Howdy Doody. <laughs> and we weren't sure which one was doing us the most good. <laughs> and we finally just decided that... My mom and dad said, you know, this thing isn't worth having. And we got rid of her television set before we ever knew there was another human being on the face of the earth had a problem with TV. I don't understand these people who hear year in and year out good, solid, Bible-based teaching and never see anything. 
And we were walking with the Lord and growing and blossoming, and our home became a heaven. So wonderful to be a Christian. And I, a little boy with serious problems, I had developed serious emotional problems. I hated people. Now, I don't want to overplay this here. I'm sure that if you had seen me as a child, in most cases, I'd have just skipped by. You'd have seen just a little boy that maybe was a little hyperactive, but you, I don't mean that I, I was a babbling idiot, but I do mean that I had serious problems. I didn't like people. I liked animals, and I lived in a fantasy world, and the years went by, and I did not learn, and every now and then they'd push me up a grade just as a matter of course, but I was not learning. I was in bad shape. Until that day, at nine years of age, for the first time in my life, I heard the gospel and we got saved. And suddenly I realized that I wasn't a mistake, I wasn't a piece of garbage, I wasn't a garbage pail kid, that you aren't important because you're smart or good-looking or rich or talented. You're important because God loved you so much that he gave his son to die for you. And when that broke in on my young heart, it changed my life forever. Do you understand that I am not claiming and do not believe that God actually healed me in the physical sense? I still have my dyslexia. But he healed my spirit. He helped me suddenly to realize who I was. I was a child of God. And the knowledge of that changed me from a kid who probably would have eventually been institutionalized till I walked through this world with poise and dignity and confidence why I belong to the king. Praise God. You wonder why I love Jesus? I'll be frank with you people. I'm not really into selling a creed or, or an organization, but I sure do like to share Jesus. Amen. It meant that because Jesus was in my life that my teenage years were so wonderful. A praying mama, a good church, all of the fellowship of the church people and the other young people. Wonderful to be a Christian. I got into those wonderful years of courtship and romance. Eventually found a home out in the country, 15 miles from Shaw Air Force Base where we lived. My father's career had somewhat changed and we had settled down now. And in this home, there were 14 children, farm home, and seven of them were girls. <laughs> and I was very interested in the girls, <laughs> and one of them in particular. And so there began the couple years of serious romance and courtship, wonderful time. It was a good time. My daddy is a a wonderful man. He's a very brilliant man. He's a very eccentric man. He's different. I remember when I used to go out to date Olene. Uh, sometimes I'd drive my daddy's car, a 1955 Packard Patrician. And by the way, I, that's my car now. My daddy gave it to me a few years ago. Uh, but uh, I, I owned at that time, my car was a little Morris Minor 1000, a little British car. It's a little tiny car. It's an ideal courting car. Your girlfriend has to sit close to you. There is nowhere else to sit. <laughs> I mean, it's a little narrow. You almost need training wheels, you know, before you get the hang of keeping it up. 
And my daddy, one of his eccentricities is that my daddy collects tires like most men collect postage stamps or something. My daddy, when we lived in California, my daddy had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of tires, sheds full of tires. I mean, he just bought tires. In fact, when we got ready to move from California to South Carolina, we had a, a car, he had a, a Cadillac convertible, four tires. They had not yet invented the load leveler hitch, so there was a little dolly that fit between the trailer and the car, two tires. And then there was the house trailer in which we lived, and I believe that it was maybe, I don't remember, four or six tires. And so we had a number of tires on the ground, but when we got ready to leave and move, my father lifted me up on the roof of the trailer he took all the tires off of the car and the trailer and the dolly and such like over a period of time, and he replaced them with the worst tires that he had. Now, you understand he had tires that were brand new, and he had tires that were onion skins. He had tires that were bald-headed, tires you could see the air in. I mean, tires that were totally worn out, okay? He put those on the ground. He put the very best tires that he had, he handed them up to me, and he had me lay them in a row across the width of the trailer, and then starting from the best, going towards the worst, he put, he kept handling, handing up hundreds of tires. I stacked them several deep, and we worked all the way down this trailer, and till the very worst, of course, were on the ground, on the car, and on the trailer, and on the dolly. And then he crawled up there with me, and he wired them all on the roof, and we started the track out across the desert, headed east for South Carolina. We hadn't gone 50 miles. We blew a tire. My daddy would rather change tires than eat when he's hungry. My daddy loves to change tires. And I'm not talking about changing wheels. I'm talking about changing tires. You know, where you drive up on the old tire and pinch it off the wheel. And, and I mean, talking major work. He had a device that he could screw into a spark plug hole on the engine of the car and pump the tire up. But outside of that, it was manual labor. And we'd, we'd be out in the middle of the desert, and he'd change a tire, throw the old carcass on there, hoist me up on the roof, and I would throw down the next most ball-headed tire that he had. He would say, well, I got all the good out of that one, throw the old carcass away, put the new one on, and we'd head on and go another 20 miles. Well, you could follow our trail by the tire carcasses along the road. My daddy loved to change tires. In fact, I remember one time since I'd been married, I went down home and went to the old home place, met my mom at the door, kissed her, said, where's dad? She said, he's in the bathtub with a tire. I said, really? She said, yeah, go on in. So I went in. My daddy was sitting in the bathtub, about half full of water. Sitting between his legs was a beautiful big tire, wide, where it was white wall was checkerboard. It was mounted on a wheel with a spinner hubcap, and he was washing it. I said, hi, dad. He said, hi, son. I said, what you doing? He said, I'm washing this tire. I said, uh, that's nice. I said, where'd you get that? He said, well, he said, I bought so many tires from Cheek and Presley recapping till I won a contest and I could have any tire in the place. And so I chose this one. I said, this is nice. So what you going to put it on? He said, well, it won't fit anything I've got. It was just the nicest tire they had. So I got it. <laughs> you say, your daddy's crazy. My daddy is brilliant. Believe me. And I could, I could uh, demonstrate that. My daddy was brilliant, but my daddy was eccentric. And when uh, this meant that during my courtship days, now my wife was a Christian and I was Daddy is brilliant, <laughs> believe me, and I could, I could uh, demonstrate that. 
My daddy was brilliant, but my daddy was eccentric. And when uh, this meant that during my courtship days, now my wife was a Christian and I was a Christian. We loved the Lord very much, and we had a very, very wonderful romance. We look back, no guilt, no shame, no mistrust of each other. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing to honor God during your romance and your courtship. We prayed before every date and prayed together on the date sometimes, and we had a wonderful, wonderful courtship. And we were under the restrictions that our parents put on us. We could go to her house, my house, her church, my church, and the Dairy Queen, and that was about it. And so we spent a lot of time at the Dairy Queen. But uh, we would, I would take, get her and bring her back into the, to my home, and we would sit in the parlor, you know, and, and talk. And so now it would suddenly be time we're going to have to really rush to get home. I'd run out, jump in my car, crank it up, put it in gear, and nothing would happen. And I'd look back out, and there were no tires on it. It was jacked up in the air. And I would run around to the back of the house to the shed, and there'd be my daddy humming away, framming on tires and stuff. And I'd say, Daddy, where are my tires? I've got to take this girl home. Oh, 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 okay. I was just playing around with tires. He'd roll the tires back, and he'd put them back on the car. Well, he had all kinds of tires and wheels and big ones and little ones, and he'd just put them back on. So sometimes he'd have the big ones in the back and the little ones in the front, and I'd drive down the road like this. And, and sometimes he'd put big ones in the front and little ones on the back, and we'd drive like this, or get them on the side, you know. Or he'd get them cattywampus, and you'd go down the road, you know. Oh, it was a beautiful time. Wonderful, wonderful time. Very much in love. Oh, I'm so glad that Jesus saved me before my courtship and that he found for me a Christian wife. It was wonderful. Marvelous. I remember when I asked for we'd all we'd been going together for for a couple years. We knew we were going to get married. My parents knew we were going to get married. I'm quite sure her parents knew we were going to get married, but I had just never really officially asked for her. I was scared. And uh, I'd go out there to see her, and she had, as I said, she had seven brothers, and uh, they were big, brawny farm boys dressed in, in bib overalls and brogans, and they'd look at this little city slicker come sliding in there with that sometimes 55 Packard or that, and they just kind of looked askance at me. Who was this guy coming in here courting their sister? And I walked very lightly out there at the farm. I remember, though, one night I got off work and got dressed up, cleaned up, kissed my mama and said, Mama, I'm headed out to see Olene. And she said, Well, I've got a surprise for her. And she went back in the bedroom and she brought out a beautiful white sports coat. She said, I've been saving and I bought this for you. And it was beautiful. But, oh, I was crestfallen. I said, Mama, you don't understand. I can't wear that out there. Her brothers already look at me like I'm a speckled bird. I, I go out there, and that thing, they'll laugh me to scorn. And I could see that it hurt my mother's feelings, and so I said, I'm sorry, Mama. Sure, I'll wear it. Thank you. And I put it on. And she said, well, she said, I bought it for a special reason, for your daughter's wedding, I mean, your future bride's wedding shower. I said, her what? She said, I've planned a wedding shower for her next month. In fact, she said, I mailed your future in-laws an invitation to it today. <laughs> I said, you what? <laughs> I said, Mama, I haven't even asked for her yet. 
She said, well, you better ask tonight because they're going to get a letter tomorrow. So all the way out there, I prayed, oh, dear Jesus, don't let there be anybody there except for her daddy and her mama. I drove up and it looked like a used car convention. They are related to everybody in the lower half of South Carolina and most of them come home for supper. And I, so I went in and there they all were and they could tell, I guess, something. You know, it was interesting though. I drove up in the yard with that white coat on. I wanted to leave it in the car, but I told my mama I would wear it. And so I got out and Olene stepped out on the porch. She said, oh, oh, I really like that. I said, you do? Yeah, yeah, turn around. You know, I, I mean, I nearly wore it out. I didn't even want to send it to the dry cleaners after that. You know why? She like, let me tell you something. This whole thing, when you see people struggling to obey God, something's not working right. It's a joy when you discover what Jesus likes to just fall in line. <laughs> you just love him. People, there are places, and I don't want to sound overly sanctimonious here. I'm not. But I do know that down through the years, as I've known, come to know Jesus more deeply and more intimately, I've discovered little things about his personhood, his character, his taste, if you please. I've discovered that he likes little things and simplicity. He likes gentleness. And every one of those things has colored my life as I've just wanted out of love to just adapt. Some of them almost too, too subtle for me to even explain if I wanted to, but little things that have colored my life. It's so easy to adjust when you're in love. So easy. But I kept praying, Lord, would you help me somehow? Oh my, and give me a chance and an opportunity. And I, I finally got out in the kitchen with her daddy and there were little, I mean, she had, she had brothers that were younger than some of the, the grandchildren, you know. I mean, the family was so large. And, and so they're looking out from under the table and eyeballs looking around the door facings and everything. And, but finally, now, you have to understand, people, that at that time I weighed, the day I got married, I weighed 125 pounds. I got married in a size 16 boy's britches, so my wife's a real good cook. And, uh, <laughs> but, uh, so I'm standing there by my sweetheart, and I finally said, Mr. Christmas, or that was his name, I said, Mr. Christmas, I, I uh, would like to ask for permission to marry your daughter. And he was, you know, it's a little awkward for the daddy, too, to give away a daughter. And he finally just sort of said, well, said, you know, said she, she's not been real well lately. And she hadn't. She had been having some physical problems. And I said, well, I'm not any he-man myself. And <laughs> he gave consent, and we eventually were married. And I'm telling you, people, it's just getting gooder and gooder. <laughs> So wonderful to find God's place, find God's mate, marry them in the love of God, the wonder and the discovery and the bonding of the intimacy when there's never been any fooling around. That's the way it's supposed to be. And it works. And it just makes the bonding grow deeper and deeper through the years. I love Olene more now than I ever have, and I believe she feels the same towards me. Wonderful to be a Christian. Yes, she is. Olene, stand up. Stand up, honey. 
I love her so much. Amen. I remember back after we were married, in fact, we, we had uh, a couple children, we, the Lord began to put his thumb in my back to go back to school. And I didn't want to go back to school. I mean, I had done well to get out of high school. And uh, I just didn't want to go. And I felt like the Lord was because of my family situation and so on, leading me to go to a local liberal arts college. And in fact, I felt he was urging me to, to major in the life sciences. And I, I said, Lord, I don't want to go. I mean, first of all, you know, and I am not qualified for it. I, I, I have problems. I, I can't learn very well. And, and I, I just am not up to it. And if I go there, I'll, I'll flop out and I'll, I'll just bring a reproach. And besides that, you're, you're telling me that you want me to major in the life sciences. And you know, it's a liberal arts college and they'll teach evolution. And uh, you know that I, there must be a lot of good evidence for evolution because everybody believes it. And if I go there and they bring out the evidences, I can't be like the proverbial ostrich and stick my head in the sand. I'll have to face truth. And one thing, people, I don't quite understand this, but when Jesus saved me, he gave me a love for people where there had been almost a psychopathic hatred for people. And he gave me a love for truth. I confess I have a hard time putting up with that that doesn't strike me as true. And uh, I said, you know, I can't play with the truth, and yet if they bring out this information, and there it is, I, I'll have to face truth, and if they convince me of evolution, my whole life will fall apart because I've built my life on the conviction that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative word of God. Now, do you see what I was actually saying? Without even realizing, I was saying, God, I'm not sure that the Bible can stand the test. I didn't realize that's what I was saying, but that's what I was saying. And Lord, I'm just not up to this. I'm not qualified. I don't have what it takes. But the Lord kept pushing, and finally I knew that if I did not obey him, I would grieve him. And so very reluctantly, I went and took my uh, SAT test and then applied for college. I remember I had a hard time getting into college because of my abysmal high school record. But they finally let me in on a probationary status. I remember when I filled out the form, it had a place in there, if you've been out of school for more than a year, what have you been doing in the meantime? And I'd been out for 10 years, except for just a, a little tiny bit of Bible college way back. And I don't know, they had a big place for an answer. I guess they wanted an essay, but I just wrote, growing up. And it must have satisfied them. They let me in, though, on a probationary status. And so I went in. Well, I, I remember I was in one of my first science classes, just a general biology class. And I already felt like a speckled bird. I was older than the other students. And I'm sitting there, and sure enough, the professor opened the text to the introductory chapter, and he started down through all of the evidences for evolution. He would walk over and pull charts down on the wall. He pulled down a chart, you know, of the strata you know, like you would find in the Grand Canyon, the various strata of the Earth's surface. And superimposed on that would be various fossil bones, and, and they were arranged so that you could see the, the evolution of maybe the horse. Way down here would be the little dawn horse, Eohippus, and way up here the modern Equus, and all of the, the steps in between. And then there'd be the same for the camel and maybe for some other creatures, and, and that proved evolution. He pulled down a chart of vestigial organs. These were organs that used to do something when you were an animal, and 
climbed around on all fours and ate grass, but now that you've evolved into an upright creature, they don't do anything more anymore. They're called vestigial organs, and that proves evolution. He pulled down a chart of the embryonic development of creatures, the stages they go through as embryos as they develop, and he pointed out the similarities. He said, you'll notice that the, the human being starts life as a single cell floating around in a watery environment. That's because your ancient ancestors were single cells floating around in the primordial sea. He said, you'll notice here that a human embryo has gill slits. That's because you share an ancestry with the osteoichthys, the bony fishes. He said, right here, you'll notice that the human embryo has a tail. That's because you share an ancestry with the apes, which, of course, is absurd. Apes don't have tails. Monkeys have tails, but not apes. He said, uh, you know, he pointed all of these things out. And, and, uh, but when he did that one, when he said that one, now, I, I was retarded, but I could read, and I had been reading, and I, and I had read that that theory, that the embryo goes through the stages of its evolution, had been so thoroughly discredited till I was amazed to find it being taught in a, a modern liberal arts college. And, and so I raised my hand. And he said, yes, sir. Well, I'd been reading creationist material, and I used a terminology that they used, which it turned out wasn't the modern terminology anymore. But I said, are you saying that embryology recapitulates paleontology? Well, when I said that, he just stared at me. Just Finally, he walked around and sat down on the front of his desk and folded his arms and just glared at me. And everybody else was glaring at me. And I could feel my ears turning red with embarrassment. And finally, he said, uh, you are a creationist, aren't you? I said, yes, sir. He said, you know, all I know to say about you is that you, sir, are ignorant. Well, of course I'm ignorant. Why do you think I was coming to college for? Because I knew everything. <laughs> We're all ignorant people, just in different areas. If you don't think I'm ignorant, ask me to bake a cake. You'll find out how ignorant I am. I knew I was ignorant. That was no surprise. The problem was that I knew that what he was really saying to the rest of the class was that anyone who believed the Bible was ignorant. And so I went home that night and I got down before God and I said, God, I tried to tell you and you wouldn't listen to me. I told you this was going to happen and you wouldn't pay any attention. And now it's happened. And the man is told before that class that I am an ignorant person. And the fact is that I'm far worse than he doesn't know. I'm not just ignorant. I'm mentally retarded. And I told you and now here I am and I'm going to be a reproach on Jesus Christ and the Bible but I said, Lord, I didn't want to come, but you told me to come, and I'm trying to obey you. And now here I am, and I'm into this thing, and I already know that I do not have what it takes. But inasmuch as you put me there, I am not asking you to drill a hole in my head and pour in anything, and don't bother to ask him because he won't do that. But I said, I already know if I do the very best I can, it won't be enough. But if I do conscientiously the best I can, dear God, would you somehow come and make up the difference and enable me to demonstrate to this professor and to these students that you do not have to be an ignoramus to believe the Bible. And it did not come easy. And I am not smart. And it worked. It was 
hard, hard work. And I burnt the midnight oil. And I discovered that what was still, to a great extent, better than it was in childhood, but what had been, was seeming to be easy to some, was very, very difficult to me. And I worked very hard. I had that professor every semester for something. I had him for biology. I had him for botany. I had him for zoology. I had him for anatomy. I had him for biochemistry. At the end of four years of having that professor, I had taken my last exam under that professor and was slipping out of the classroom. He followed me out into the hallway and he kind of wanted to apologize and he wasn't quite man enough to do a good job of it. But he said, Mr. Barr, he said, now I know we don't agree on a lot of things. <laughs> that was an understatement. We had gone around and around for four years, every class. But he said, I want you to know we're glad to have people like you in our school. And that was a surprise because he made me feel very unwanted. But he said, I thought you might like to know that you have the highest grade point average of any student I have ever taught. And I said, thank you, Jesus. You do not have to be an ignoramus to believe the Bible. In fact, after four years under that professor and my other professor, I decided that it would help to be an ignoramus to believe some of the stuff they taught me. I paid for an education, and they taught me lies. Now, many of the things they taught me were simply a difference of interpretation of the facts, and I know that. And everything that is lumped in evolution, the terms evolution, is not necessarily wrong or false or unscientific or unbiblical. But much that they taught me, they had to know was not true, was lies. And I resent that. I remember these charts that this professor showed me. They do not tell the student when they pull down the chart of the strata that nowhere on earth can you find the strata nor the fossils laid out like that. That you find those that are supposed to be more primitive lying on top of, uh, of those that are supposedly younger that you have to go to this continent and that continent and take from this strata and that one and pick and choose and put it together. But they don't tell the student that. The vestigial organs. People, I collect old textbooks, old science textbooks. I've got them from back in the last century. I've got one that's got a two-page list of vestigial organs on it. One of the organs listed is the pituitary gland. Today we call it the master gland of the body. But they didn't know what it was back then, so they called it vestigial. It doesn't do anything. People, just because we don't know what something does doesn't mean it doesn't do anything. I remember he said, your appendix is a vestigial organ. He said, it gives a lot of people trouble. You can live without it. In fact, any time they go into your abdomen for any other reason, they remove your appendix while they're in there. Now, they don't do that anymore, but they used to. Well, what does that prove? So you can live without it. I could live without my right arm. I'd prefer not to. So it gives a lot of people trouble. I guess more people have sore throats than anything else. I'd prefer they didn't remove mine. <laughs> I mean, you really do not have to be a rocket scientist to figure some of this stuff out. That chart of the embryo development, do you know why, people, that you begin life as a single cell? Not because of some evolutionary ancestry, but people, there was a time when you were zero cells. Today, you are multiplied billions of cells. And I don't know of any way to get from zero to a billion without passing one. 
You really don't have to be real sharp to come up with that. And I sit there day after day and I listen. I do not want you to misunderstand me. If you go out of here with some kind of an idea of disrespect and and looking down on on the image of my professor or anyone else who happens to believe it, then you've totally misread what I'm trying to say. These are people created in the image of God. And as such, they have dignity. And I'm not in any way disparaging this man who was just teaching what he had been taught, no doubt. But I am saying that I went, after a few weeks in that class, my faith in the Bible soared. The Bible can take it. The truth is there. I'll close with this one. I remember I was, well, several years into my college career there when I was taking anatomy, in fact, under that professor. And the way this thing worked, you, you, we, we started out, you know, doing micro dissection under the microscope of, of the very small, and you know how you do, you work your way up through the, the, the insect, the mollusk, but the uh, crustaceans, you come up through all the worms, the ascaris worms, and the nematalmenthes, and the platyhelminthes, and you will do. And eventually we would cut up sharks and, and, and fetal pigs and cats and you name it, okay? But we were doing the frog. We were dissecting the frog. And these were huge, giant frogs. They'd been shipped in from South Africa, and they, they, would, they could have eaten a chihuahua. They were huge things. And they were nice to dissect if you're into that. You know, I mean, the veins and the arteries and the lymphatic system had all been injected with colored vinyls. And I normally enjoy that kind of thing, but we have been doing this for months. We've been cutting stuff up. It was a night lab, and, and you would go in there for several hours. And what you'd do, you'd march through this little hallway with your, your dissecting tray, and a lab helper would reach into a 55-gallon drum of formaldehyde and pull them out and plop a frog on your tray, and you'd go out and sit down at a long row of table, large class, many, many students. You had a lab partner, two to a frog. The professor would stand up front with a big chart, and he was not a, a very personable speaker, and he would just kind of drone on, you know, now make a lenticular cut from the dorsal nares back to then. He, he's going through all of this, and so I'm, you know, this particular night, I came in, and my lab partner didn't show, so I had this frog to myself. I'm sitting there with this frog laid open. The professor's up front droning. I'm half drunk on formaldehyde fumes. I'm bored. And we, I had some magic markers there because you're supposed to make notes and draw little charts and stuff of what you see. I picked up a green magic marker and, and absentmindedly touched that marker to the formaldehyde-soaked liver of that frog. And when I did, it just burst out in the prettiest little starburst of green that you ever saw. So, yeah, and I began to pokey dot this liver. And uh, I was chewing gum, which was permitted, and so I pulled the gum out and I wadded it up and I lifted up one lobe of the liver and tucked it in there and patted it down. And I was customizing this frog, which, you know, it's amazing how much faster time goes when you're having a good time. Suddenly this class is over. Now, you go back through and you throw your frog into the 55-gallon drum of formaldehyde. When you come back for your next session, you will probably not get the same frog, but it doesn't matter because all the frogs are at the same stage of dissection. So a few days later, we come back for another lab. We're back in there. My lab partner's back. We've got a frog. The professor's up there droning. When a student way over here said, Hey, prof, say, what's this stuff? <laughs> stuff? Stuff, boy. You are in a college anatomy class. There is no such thing as stuff. And he went over there and he looked. He said, Hey, hmm, what is this stuff? It isn't. <laughs> And finally, he looked up with this bright look on his face and said, all right, everybody stop what you're doing. Gather in, gather in, gather in. <laughs> so we gathered around, and I looked down, and there was my Wrigley Spearmint chewing gum. 
After several days in formaldehyde, it was one with the liver. <laughs> and he said, now we have here a very rare opportunity to study a pathogenic condition in the liver of a frog. He said, this frog has a tumor. He said, you will notice the large, ugly tumor protruding from the lower lobe of the, of the liver there, the ugly discoloration of the diseased organ. Uh, he said, and I'm over there going... <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? I couldn't help but thinking, I'm ignorant. <laughs> now, as I said, don't you take that to disdain anyone. And I don't feel that way in my heart. But I do know this. You can afford to stick by the book. It's why it's worth time to come in here and when Brother Barr does it like he's supposed to do instead of like today, study the word. It'll take the heat. It'll stand the test. It is true. Make sure you know what it says. Many is the person who's brought ridicule on the Bible by claiming it said something that it didn't. In the realm of science, I've got a good friend, quite brilliant, who believes that the earth is flat because he is a Christian and a Bible believer. And though all the evidence says that the world is round, the Bible says that the, four, the angels stood on the four corners of the earth. And therefore, he could not be a Bible believer and not believe that the world is flat. And I am not a real Bible believer because I believe the world is round. Make sure that you know what the book says. But if the Bible says it, you can stake your eternal destiny on it. It is true. Thank you for listening to Convention Pulpit, a ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention, featuring Wesleyan voices past and present. For more sermons or for more information, visit www.ihconvention.com. This ministry is made possible through the financial support of our listeners. You may give online at ihconvention.com or send your donation to IHC, Post Office Box 99, New Berlin, Pennsylvania, 17855 USA.